Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. We're back, baby. Welcome back, Sherry. Okay. Thanks. Feel good to be back. From vacation? Yeah. Is that what you mean? Okay, yeah. Yeah, I guess. It was actually a pretty good vacation. So, it's not like I don't like our house. I sure it, miss our cats, but... It doesn't take long to remember how important it is to go on vacation after coming back from vacation. It doesn't take long to uh, for it to pile up and you're right back. Yeah. Right back where you were. Yeah, yeah. We, uh... For, you... for our listeners, you probably didn't know we were on vacation because we recorded ahead. We 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 piled up some pre-recording of episodes before we left so that it would be seamless to our listeners and there wouldn't be like a week missed or anything but we yeah we got in boy what was it about twelve thirty, almost one o'clock a.m last night or early this morning depending on how you're supposed to say that um and i'm proud of us we slept in a little mm-hmm. not always easy to do especially right. coming back from vacation Right. But, yeah, slept in a little, and then, wham, right back in the normal saddle of chores and work and stuff. Stuff, yep. yeah. But it was fun. It was fun to be gone, and it was a very it was a very fun, very nice vacation. We did a little beach trip in the Caribbean, which is, uh, you know, I won't say once in a lifetime, but not many times in a lifetime for us. We had... We'd never done that before, so it was quite fun and quite exotic. You made me laugh earlier today when you were sorting clothes and getting laundry ready, and you said you found a little pile of white sand in one of our kids' bathing suit pockets. Yeah. Yep. Made you miss it, huh? Yeah. I think we could have used, like, one or two days to just fully relax, you know. Yeah. I thought you were going to say one or two months. Okay, well, oh. I would go there, too, as long as I wasn't footing the bill. Yeah. Yeah, that that was uh, <clears throat> definitely fun. But yeah, could have used some more, but glad to be back. Glad to be talking to you about our topic today, pride over shame. I, Sherry, am a huge believer in the importance of self-esteem. It's, it's often been said that the opposite of addiction is... Uh, connection that's that's pretty popular terminology in the in the recovery community i don't agree with that i think connection's important but i think the opposite of addiction is self esteem and i've said that on this podcast before i think your self esteem can come from connection but your self esteem can come from places other than connection it's important that it come from self though as opposed to what what we often do and what gives us, gets us in a jam and gets us addicted, part of what gets us addicted is that we're looking for the other person to fill our bucket for us. And so for a lot long time, I was looking for you to do things to make me feel better about myself because of how shame-ridden I was and how bad I felt about my drinking. And what I've learned is that's not how it works. I can't get my shame from you. I have to go out and earn my, sh- my pardon me, can't get my self-esteem from you. I have to go out 
and earn my self-esteem myself. And when I do, when I feel that way, we're not talking about arrogance, right? We're not talking about narcissism. But when I feel just good about myself, just my contribution to the world and family and 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 um, have that level of pride and don't have a lot of shame that's contradicting my self-esteem, when I feel that way, it makes not drinking easy. Because for me, eventually, alcohol became medicinal. And I, and I believe for anyone who drinks too much, anyone who crosses that invisible line into addiction to alcohol... The alcohol is medicinal in one way or the other. You're medicating something. It can be, as it was in my case, and as it often is with the people that we work with, it can be stress, anxiety, the stress and anxiety brought on by by having a family, the stress and anxiety brought on by work. Um, it can be, you're, you can be medicating away the memories of something really traumatic and tragic that happened. It can be a really bad childhood. It can be a, any number of things. But basically, once we cross the line into addiction, I believe we are medicating something away. And the best thing we can do to not need to medicate something away is to feel good about ourselves. I, I notice it today. Do you, does this happen for you at all? Like if I'm, if I get a good night's sleep and you know, I, I feel good about myself. I feel proud of the person I'm being, the father I'm being, the husband I'm being, the work that I'm doing. If all of those boxes are checkable, I don't seem to eat as much bad stuff for me. I don't seem to dive into the the crappy carbs or the sugars. Whereas if I'm tired, if I haven't gotten enough rest, if I've argued with you, if I've been a crappy, short-tempered father, any of that, then I reach that what what used to be the fuck it moment as a drinker pretty easily, and uh, I don't eat eat as well. Have you, do you notice that at all? Um, I think so. I guess like you're more motivated to take better care of yourself. I guess I never really thought about it like so much. If if all of the boxes are being checked off, I definitely yeah. think for me, if I'm tired, I will have a tendency to go for the sugar. Yeah. More sugar and caffeine on those days, more. Um, yeah, that, that... I think when you have... When you're having a good day you and you have, you know, a good streak going, it's just easier and you to, like, eat healthier because sometimes that takes more work if you haven't prepped your good snacks and stuff and good foods. True. You know, so... You have more than a few times pointed out that I tend to kind of overanalyze things. So when I say that... <laughs> Just a couple of have times. Have you checked all your boxes, Sherry? Um, and is that why you're you're eating so well? Because you've checked all your boxes? Yeah, that's the kind of thing that I would do that would be abnormal. So... To, to so, sit and think about it that way. Yeah. So now when I, like, you're going to... I'm going to worry about you watching me for what I'm eating at lunch now. Because you overanalyze, you're going to try to evaluate whether or not I'm... I'm not going to start doing anything okay. I'm not already doing, and <laughs> okay. I don't think you're going to feel... I, I don't. I Honestly, I don't spend any time analyzing what you're eating. You just spend time on you. Analyzing, very, overthinking. Very self-centered, you know, in yep. a lot of ways. <laughs> but I think everybody is, so... Yeah. I don't. I don't get filled with shame about... 
worrying about my own stuff because I think everyone in many to many extents are working on their own stuff. So when we feel good about ourselves, we don't feel the need to medicate, whether that's with alcohol, as is the case for people on my side of the street, or with whatever else. Food, shopping, porn, sex, uh, technology, gambling, any of those things. The things that are considered hard and fast addictions. But then, you know, addiction is definitely a spectrum disorder. So you don't have to be destroying your family and destroying your present and future to have some self-medicating going on with whatever your little your thing is or your things are. So when we feel good about ourselves, we don't feel the need to do that, which is great. You know, <clears throat> I, I've written about this recently. I think about this a lot. Pride is a tough word. Self-esteem, there's a, there's a big gray area. I don't know if gray area is the right way to say this, but, you know, it's, it's good to an extent and then it's not good. So if you talk about self-esteem versus narcissism, they're in the same category, right? Mm-hmm. The way you look at yourself, your role in the world, the way you feel about yourself. But self-esteem is good, but narcissism is bad. And pride is one of those words that I think kind of crosses the line. When I think of pride, if I'm proud of myself, if my kids are proud of themselves, if you're proud of yourself, I think that's great. I Again, big, big believer in the importance of self-esteem. But, you know, one of our kids... He, he tends to get kind of boastful, arrogant about things, about what, what he's going to do in the future or what he's best at, things like that. Mm-hmm. And so I, I can see him, and I mean, he's young and he'll grow out of it. I'm not, it's not like it's something I'm worried about, but I can see him crossing that line to where it's not healthy. But I think in the recovery community, we do ourselves a disservice when we look at the word pride and we think of that as all negative. Oh, you know, uh, you can't let your ego take over and you can't be too proud of yourself. If you, As soon as you're proud of yourself, that's when you're going to slip and you're going to drink. You hear that a lot in the more traditional settings. I, I'm trying not to just be an AA basher here because I know a lot of people get a lot of good things from Alcoholics Anonymous and it's literally saved millions of lives. And I don't think that this is the case always, but I've definitely heard in a lot of 12-step settings this concept that pride is one of the deadly sins, and it's seen as such as one of the deadly sins in AA. So if you're too proud of yourself, that's when you're going to slip and drink. Yeah, and I think, you know, in the Bible, there is a lot of, you know, avoiding of being proud of yourself or proud of what's going on around you and I don't know to me it's always felt a little um a little backward a little awkward like you know because we're Christians and and so I do believe in God so I think if God made me exactly how I'm supposed to be you know and I'm following this path if depending on what your you know predestination beliefs are I should be feeling proud of myself yeah. because I was made by God and that's how he made me to be. So it's always that, like this double-edged sword, like you can have a little pride, but not too much. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And and that confidence and pride level, you know, 
can't get too high or then you'll be an annoying person to be around. But, you know, you see the sadness of people that don't have very much pride and self-confidence. I mean, we have one son who's very gifted musically and he beats himself up off mm -hmm. of often because of small little mistakes. And I'm like, you are 12 years old. You know, this is fantastic. You can do so well and play so well. So well, it's like that guess lack who of... I'm most worried about as it relates to alcohol addiction in the future, right? Yeah, yeah. The one that beats himself up and feels bad about himself and is going to be looking for something to medicate that away. Yeah, and I mean, you can't Excellent force point. people to have self-confidence and pride. Like, you, you can't really teach that. You can encourage... And you can guide and, you know, but that's, that's tough. Well, so much of parenting, I think, traditionally has been about shame. Telling someone when they're doing something bad, correcting people. I remember a very good friend of ours who her son is a little bit older than our kids. She was the first one, and, and this is widely known now. This is, I'm not going to lay anything new on our listeners that they don't already know. But she was the first one that talked about you can talk about your child's behavior as being bad, but you can't call your kid bad. That was like groundbreaking for our generation of parenting to never say that your kid is bad, but the behavior that they engaged in is bad. Or bad choices. Yeah, and I'm here to say I think we need to go a lot further than that. I'm not yeah. saying we never correct our kids, but we need to emphasize the positive. The world's hard, and if you want to... If you want your kid to get beat up, that's going to happen naturally. There's going to be all kinds of negativity that they've got to deal with. And I think it's our job as parents and it's our job as a family to create a safe environment, a positive environment for everyone who lives there. And when you when you come home and you're in the safety of the house, that's where we need to be building things up and being positive and helping people find their self-esteem so that they've got enough fuel in the tank when they go out there and deal with all the nasty that's out there. So I'm glad I'm glad you kind of segued us into that, but I do want to go back to this concept of pride being one of the deadly sins, pride being negative, pride being something that in a lot of 12-step communities you'll hear you're going to relapse when you get too much pride, when you get too much ego. I think the reason for that sentiment, for that fear in the recovery community is because with pride comes often comes this belief that, oh, I've got this addiction licked. I'm stronger than the addiction. I'm stronger than alcohol. So I'm sure I can moderate now. I'm fixed. I'm cured. Mm -hmm. I haven't drank for six weeks. I haven't drank for six months, whatever the time period is. So clearly, I'm not still addicted, so I can try to drink again. Listen, once you've crossed this line into addiction and you've programmed your brain in such a way that it knows how to use and abuse alcohol. It knows how to downregulate all other stimuli when it comes to the dopamine and serotonin, the neurotransmitters. So in other words, you only get that release, that jolt of joy when you drink alcohol. Once we've made that correlation in our brain, that correlation is never, ever, ever going away. So our only hope to live a happy, normal, peaceful, joyful life is to not drink. And you can do that for the rest of your life. I, I say that I'm recovered. I don't say I'm in recovery. I don't sit around all day thinking about alcohol or thinking about how not to drink. I don't take it one day at a time. 
I don't wake up every morning and recommit to my sobriety. I don't do any of that. I just don't drink. Drinking's not an option for me. You know, I have a weird buckwheat allergy too. Guess what? I don't eat buckwheat. It's just, if I was allergic to peanut butter and it was going to kill me, I wouldn't eat peanut butter. Oh, that would be hard. I really like peanut butter. (laughs) I was going to say, I think that, ugh, that would be the worst for you. Yes. Yes. But the, the point is, I feel like in the recovery community, we have, it's almost like we don't trust each other's intelligence. And so we say, oh, you sound like you're awful prideful. You sound like you're feeling confident. You sound like you're feeling good about yourself. You're going to relapse. That, that's not, that's a dotted line. That's not a direct line. Self-esteem does not lead to relapse. It's the opposite. Self-esteem is the opposite of addiction. But the the reason that pride is considered a deadly sin in the recovery community is because the 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 fear the real fear is not that you're proud of yourself the real fear is you're so proud of yourself that you think you've licked this thing you're and you can drink it. you think you're smarter than alcohol yeah you'll never and really alcohol. the word ego has been really abused and misused in a lot of ways because it really just means a good sense of self. And if you are self-aware and you are a self-aware alcoholic in recovery or recovered, you wouldn't abuse, you know, you wouldn't, your pride and your ego wouldn't take you down there. You would just be proud to tell people, I no longer drink. I no longer am a drinker. You know, however you want to say it. I was an alcoholic. Now I just don't drink at all. And I feel like a healthy person. Like I said, however you want to say it. But I think the reason ego gets dragged into the kind of dirty word category is because of the the cool attachments you could put on the end of ego, like egomaniacal and egomaniac. Egocentric, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we there are a lot of, there is a lot of negativity associated with that word because of how we say it sometimes. Someone who is ego, egomaniacal is not, does not have a healthy sense of ego. Yes. But what you said is absolutely right. Ego, self-esteem, pride, these are all good things in the proper doses. There is definitely... And if you have those before you're to that point where you're medicating, then you, with alcohol or whatever addiction it is, you probably won't, you won't probably have an addiction. Right. Or the need to medicate in some way and find relief from yourself because you have, you're aware you have pride in yourself. You you respect your body, respect your mind. You wouldn't trash it and, you know. So one of the other gray areas that results from this specific topic is, like, I am not ashamed of myself. I've been sober for over five years now. And I I don't beat myself up for my past transgressions. I don't beat myself up for my drinking. I'm sad for what happened to us. On the one hand, for sure. I mean, there was lots of pain, lots of turmoil, lots of stuff that our kids were exposed to directly and indirectly. Lots of lots of regret. And I don't think that you... I don't want our listener to think that you, like, if they're someone who's familiar with the 12-step, you didn't really do an amends process. You didn't go around telling everybody you're sorry and hearing your side of it. You and I worked on resentments, and you heard my side of it. So I know we've... 
got a lot of our podcasts talk about that, but I just want to make sure that people are aware. It's not like you're like, oh, it's in the past. I'm going to never deal with it again. Good you point. have dealt with your past. You have listened to the people you've hurt. There has been conversations, multiple conversations often, and and you blame the alcohol, and you have asked, and you've told people that you were sorry, that you felt deserved an apology, but you didn't go around with the sad, one-sided amend process to check it off your list to go forward. I appreciate you saying that. You're absolutely right. I'm, I didn't reach this point automatically or quickly. It took a long time and a lot of work to get to the point where I don't feel any shame or sadness necessarily for what happened to us. I, I, like I said, on the one hand, there is, you know, I, uh, when I think about all the pain that was caused, that might make me a little bit sad or wish that it didn't happen. But on the other hand, I wouldn't be where I am today if I didn't go through what I went through. You wouldn't be where you are today if you didn't go go through what you went through. I There are a lot of people just kind of gliding through life in a cloud of ignorant bliss. That sounds so judgmental of me to say that. But whether it's addiction or uh, grief, uh, a significant loss, um, they talk about how dyslexia is a, there's a silver lining to dyslexia because that's a that's something you've got to deal with as a child. And once you've learned to deal with dyslexia of a chi- as a child, there's a remarkable number of hugely successful people who were dyslexic because they learned to conquer something so early on. So I'm glad that I faced something and I had to conquer it. I'm glad that you faced something and you had to conquer it, that we did this together, because I think it puts us in a position to continue to grow and expand and learn and to be humble and to to want to not only improve our relationship, but improve as individuals. And if you don't go through anything, you probably don't ever kind of have that degree of self-reflection. And I'm going to just make sure that I point out, you said humble, and we're saying humble and pride and ego, and we're throwing these those words around. Those can coexist. Yeah, those can coexist. You can, you can feel proud about your actions, but still be humble that you don't have all the answers. You know what worked for you. You know what's working for you, but you can be humble and empathetic and, you know, just want to make sure people know that that can, because I'm sure that they're really, thinking, how can those things work together? It's really important. I would argue that the better your self-esteem is, the more, the more, more healthy or healthier, healthier your self-esteem is, the better you are at humility and knowing that you don't have to have all the answers and that other people can be right. That's where narcissists get in trouble, right? They only listen to themselves and believe that what they believe to be true is the truth. The more self-confident you feel, the less you feel a need to be right all the time. And feel the need to be defensive. Yeah. I love it when I get corrected because that means I've learned something. When, when, When I get proven wrong, I just got smarter. Yeah. But if it was... And if it was a situation like we talked about with correcting children, if you're teaching it in a non-shameful way that it's okay to learn every day and be corrected, then you're developing a good healthy pattern for adulthood. Because there are a lot of adults that feel like everybody expects them to know all the answers, whether it's your job or social, you know, socializing and 
You're just asked to, because you're, you're older and you don't, you know, so I remember being kind of feeling embarrassed by an old neighbor we had. We, I grew up, let me just preface this. I grew up in a small town in the middle of Indiana in the seventies and eighties. Okay. Hadn't had a whole lot of experience with, um, different foods from around the world. We were talking about going out to dinner and I was talking about sushi and the neighbor lady made it seem like I was just, you know, from the moon that I hadn't ever heard, you know, hadn't had a great experience with sushi before. Yeah. So I was like, you know, and it made me feel embarrassed. Yeah. And I thought, how judgmental. But I thought, after I thought about it, I was like, well, it just didn't happen in my world. Yeah. Like, I had lots of other European and South American cuisines. It's just... That I hadn't had. Nothing to be embarrassed nothing about. Nothing to be embarrassed about. Yeah. So, but some people would be very defensive and protective about that and, you know, yeah, be upset. No, absolutely. That That's a great point. You know, we talk, we've talked so far basically about the importance of self-esteem and pride for the drinker, but you and I will agree there is lots of shame for the person who is the loved one of an alcoholic in an alcoholic relationship. And there is a really big, important need for self-esteem to return on the part of the spouses and the, the other loved ones as well. Um, you know, let, let's talk about the things that the loved ones of alcoholics, they fall into a shame cycle with. One that comes right to mind is the reaction. You and I have talked a lot about how you know, alcohol affects not only the alcoholic, it affects the people that are around the alcoholic, even if they're not consuming alcohol themselves. So, for instance, when I got drunk and I said nasty things to you, there's only so much that you can take before you start to say nasty things back to me. You're hurt. You're you're in defense mode. Um, you know, and, and so you're going to, as they say in fight or flight, in many cases, you're going to fight back. And so you've said a lot of really nasty, just vile things to me when I was drinking and as a result of my alcoholism when you were stone cold sober. Things that I haven't heard from you in years and I don't expect that I'll ever hear again. So they're clearly, the you know, the alcohol is clearly to blame, but that is something that you have to work through. That's part of the resentment processing. You have to deal with the fact that you've said these awful, shameful things. Yeah. That's hard. It's hard. I mean, because you're... You just... Well, I have a quick temper. That's no doubt. And when you're just getting berated and you're so upset, and half the time I would think, oh, God, they're not even... He's not even going to remember this, so I could say whatever I want. But it still, like, hurts my heart knowing that that's not what I really feel, but I was so changed by the alcohol as well, even though I wasn't the one that was drinking it, um, that it's out there and then I feel terrible for saying it. Because, you know, subconsciously you may have received that message without remembering I said something. And whether I did or not, you said it. And you're a good person, so you don't feel good about having said that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Another one that comes up a lot when we have conversations with people about shame as the loved one of an alcoholic 
there's a lot of stuff around the financial component of a relationship. A lot of times, the loved one feels trapped. Maybe, well, I'll just give our example, right? We had kids. We had four kids. We had a business that we ran together. But, you know, 75% of that was me and 25 was you. You were very busy with your, the rest of your 75% was devoted to raising the kids. So extremely valuable, extremely important. But raising kids doesn't necessarily bring in an income. So there, you got to the point where you felt stuck. Even when you would start to consider, gosh, this isn't working out. This guy's an alcoholic. He's not getting any better. I need to think about what's best for the kids and for myself. And so I need to be able to put together a plan for leaving if it comes to that, if I decide I need to go there. And then there's a ton of shame around the fact that financially it would be very, very difficult to leave. This is, again, a topic that we've covered in previous episodes. So, But the the point that I want to make here is not... I don't want to like dissect the financial difficulties with leaving. I want to talk about the shame that people feel. They feel like they're stuck, like they're trapped. And, and what we hear a ton of is people saying, how did I get myself into this? Mm-hmm. I'm a smart person. I've got a strong family background. Maybe I've got a college degree. Maybe I've got years of experience in the workforce proving myself. I've got all these things going for me. How on earth did I get myself in this position? So it's very common for people to feel um, stuck or trapped and then feel ashamed of the fact that they got themselves stuck or trapped. That was part of it for you, yeah? Yeah, I think that I just felt like I would never be able to earn the amount of income needed to support myself and the family, even if you were to have, you know, had child support. Um, But I felt, I felt really trapped and that made me feel, I think, even angrier when there would be a drinking incident because then I felt like really trapped, really screwed, really, you know, hostile, like I was a hostile prisoner. Um, Yeah, back to fight or flight. You've tried fight. That's not working. So it's time to retreat. It's time for flight. Mm -hmm. And I can't. And you can't. Yeah. So I think that like towards the end, especially when we were having arguments, I should say in the middle when your drinking was really bad and we were arguing a lot, I, a lot of that pain came from being stuck. Mm -hmm. Because you're right, there isn't, you know, I don't have a retirement plan from staying home. Right. You know, I, we weren't investing in an IRA because we weren't, you know, making money hand over fist when we were thinking of savings that wasn't something that was built into the savings so and that shame just lingers so maybe we you know i stop drinking and we stop fighting and things get better for a while the shame lingers though you Mm -hmm. you you don't unknow what you know you still are in that same financial position so that's a that's a shame that sticks around you know there's shame associated with the impact on the kids for sure even if even if you think you're doing an outstanding job of hiding the drinking from the kids or hiding the arguing that results from the drinking from the kids, maybe you're not screaming and yelling right in front of them 
there's so many ways that the kids are impacted anyway that I did not understand at the time. I thought we were doing great. I know you had a more realistic viewpoint, but you know, when mom's walking on eggshells all the time or when mom's mood changes every time dad walks into the room and when the couple is clearly not getting along, when there's no affection between the parents, when there's just a tension that lives in the air or or when one of the parents is not as good a parent as they normally would be because of the impact on alcohol of alcohol on them you know you think oh it's not impacting the kids well if it's impacting the adults and the adults are stressed and worried and in a bad place it's impacting the kids and the shame that's associated with not being the best possible parents that's something that as the loved one of an alcoholic you definitely carry around. Mm-hmm. I know that that's something that, that still lingers. Whenever one of our kids, even, you know, we've got two that are technically adults now, right? Even when, when they make a questionable decision or they show signs of being extra introverted or lonely or anything like that, you know, you and I both immediately go to, oh, how did my drinking impact this? How did, how did, the alcoholism that they lived with, how did that make them be in this bind that they're in now? Right. That's shame, man. That that's we're carrying yes, there's something healthy to exploring that and investigating it and trying to make it better. But it's also that the fact that we go there immediately is lingering shame. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you don't have to be the drinker to feel a crap ton of shame. And I think that's a really important thing for the drinkers to understand your loved ones if they have stuck by you if they're still there they have to process shame as well um not shame about your drinking but shame about their behavior that resulted from your drinking well and you mentioned in that piece of it was you know how am i having how am i allowing myself to live this life this and stay there. Mm-hmm. And and I think that it's hard because people don't understand how much love can still be there and yeah. how much you want the relationship to work. So then you have outside forces where you feel like you're being judged. That kind of adds to the shame of, I can't believe I've gotten myself into the situation and I'm still here. Even though you want it to get better and you want that person who's your partner to become healthy and sober... And you're trying to explain that to the world that doesn't understand. Yeah. So that makes you feel like you're just an idiot. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a lot of shame around sex in an alcoholic relationship. There's a few different directions that sex can go in in a relationship where there's heavy drinking. You know, in our relationship, the alcohol made sex kind of dirty. It made it, you know, you were not attracted to me. You engaged in sexual contact anyway. And eventually that made me feel bad about myself too. But sometimes I had been drinking and I was just too oblivious to feel bad about myself. But it made you feel bad about yourself, right? Yeah. I did. I Because I felt like I didn't have enough 
self-confidence or self-worth and the respect of you to say, I do not want to engage in sex with you because it will be unloving at this moment because you are intoxicated and it doesn't feel like it would be good and it's not what I want out of the relationship as far as sex goes. So there was a whole lot of that negative self-talk. Also, I was knew that you were a good arguer and that you would argue with me and it would cause problems. Yeah. Because you wouldn't be quiet about it. You'd pout and cause more of an argument and uh, probably get up and drink and then that would just make your behavior worse. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's the other the other way that things can go in an alcoholic relationship where the sex doesn't continue, it just stops. The loved one says, no, I, I don't want any part of that with you. Guess what? That doesn't free you from the shame. You still think about the fact that I married this person. This person's telling me that they they miss me. They miss the intimacy. They miss the sexual contact. I'm not willing to give it to them. You might be right as the loved one to be saying no. It's any woman's prerogative to say no, for sure. Or man. Or man. Yes, exactly. But it doesn't free you of the shame of saying, yeah, but I did marry this person. And that's a reasonable expectation that they have. And so just because you're making the right decision doesn't mean there won't be shame involved. And so, you know, it, we are blessed. We, we Because we talk about sex and intimacy, people talk about it with us as well. But I, I feel like this is an iceberg situation. I feel like even though we get to have conversations with people and we get to hear them honestly express what's going on sex-wise, I still feel like we only get the tip of the iceberg. I oh, feel like yeah. it's so taboo. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a huge source of shame <clears throat> for the loved ones of alcoholics. The whole topic of sex and intimacy. Now, I'm looking at my notes that I made for this podcast episode and the next this is a big like this is a big sentence this is a big phrase and it came from you so i want you to talk more about it but we we talk about all these things that create shame and there is a gender component mostly what we're talking about are the situations where the man is the drinker and the wife is the loved one not always it can definitely go both directions but often that's the situation and so when we talk about the shame that the loved one carries, if that's a woman, there is a huge societal role of the patriarchy on women just normalizing shame in general. If you're a woman and if you grow up a woman, the idea that you're ashamed of something is pretty common. Yes. Do you remember sharing that thought with me? It was a while ago. Um, I don't remember. It was before sharing. White Sandy Beach. Oh. Well, I don't remember the the comment or the conversation, but I mean, you just look at society from marketing to I don't know expectations of women. I you know the fact that voting rights were suppressed for so long. Like, there's so many things that. If you can't see it, then you're part of the problem as a male. Mm, if you yeah. can't see those gender component differences, it's everywhere. And I and I'm not. I don't want to feel like I'm bashing men at all. I mean, 
I know there are a lot of people that say the Constitution was made for, you know, white males. Like, that's what the Constitution is representing. And in a lot of ways, that is the case, you know. Um, So I think that you can just look at everything. I mean, as far as workforce, our country doesn't really give... You know, there's, like I said, there's no retirement plan for stay-at-home moms. Yeah. You know, and in even industries until recently, there were not a lot of women who are, and, you know, even broke through the glass ceiling of some of those industries. Or very few women that, you know, doctors, for example, surgeons, they're just not there in yes, the numbers sh- where men are. Shame's just a, it's a component of, being a woman that's it's just ingrained in our society you know when you talk about body shaming for instance i think there are far more women who suffer from body shaming even self body shaming right yeah than than necessarily men do well and i'm i'm gonna confess like when i see somebody who is in a bathing suit that i feel is not as modest And I don't feel that they, you know, and in my eyes, because of marketing, because of conditioning, they don't have the, I have been conditioned that they don't have the body that would fit that bathing suit, Mm -hmm. but they want to wear it and it makes them feel good. And then it's almost like I say it in a judgmental way, but then I'm also jealous that they have that confidence. Yes. Cause I don't, but I also know that I am more modest with my clothes and coverage but is that shame or is that just a level of comfort of who I am? I've never been one that's, even in high school, you know, or in college, I never really, quote unquote, dressed slutty. Like when I went out clubbing, I always had on clothes that were more modest because that just makes me feel more comfortable. Um, but, but, then at the, but then at the end of the night... After clubbing, we would all go skinny dipping in the pool at the apartment complex I worked at, or I lived at, you know? Like, so it's not like, I think it was shame and embarrassment, maybe that was alleviated by the dancing and drinking, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, that's... It all ties in the, like, just my conditioning, I suppose. Yeah. Lots, lots of shame to go around. You know... I am increasingly convinced that defeating the shame, wherever it comes from, whatever aspect of loving an alcoholic, your reaction, you took the bait, you yelled and screamed, you feel bad that you're not in a financial position to leave, the impact on the kids, that sex has turned dirty or that sex has dried up, any of these things that bring about feelings of shame, defeating that shame is just as important for the spouses, for the loved ones of alcoholics, as it is for the alcoholics themselves. For the alcoholics, it's obvious. If I feel confident about myself, if my self-esteem returns, then I don't have anything I need to medicate, I won't drink, and my sobriety will be secure. So it's less obvious for the loved ones, but the recovery process requires... um, defeating the shame and and finding self-esteem um and that that certainly 
has been the case for us. That's been a huge, important component. When we talk about things like resentment processing, you being heard and your side of the story being known to be the truth, me accepting that, not apologizing for what I did. I mean, that's that's a different topic entirely. But for you giving me the details of what happened and me acknowledging that that really happened, that takes a huge chunk of the shame away for, for you because you're not the only one that's got this memory and you can't be questioned any longer as to the accuracy of your memory. I'm acknowledging you're right. You're right. So the shame from, from a lot of that goes away. Um, you know, things that I've just noticed in you as your self-esteem has improved through a lot of work on your part, you know, you're calmer when we argue. Um, (laughs) Newsflash, uh, extended sobriety and recovery work, not only as an individual, but recovery work on the relationship does not mean that we agree on everything all the time. We still have disagreements. We still argue. But it never gets like it used to. It's rational. It's it's calm. Um, sometimes we can agree to disagree. More times than not, we can come to some kind of a resolution. But it's it all um, stems from the fact that we both feel better about ourselves. So the more self-esteem we have, the the calmer our arguments will be. Do you feel that? Do you feel that going in when we disagree? Um, I think I do. Sometimes I feel like it's easier to not, I wouldn't say suppress, but control and contain my feelings because I'm not feeling trapped. I'm not feeling isolated. I'm not feeling frustrated um, going in because the the our relationship and the day-to-day has been so much better And I also don't feel defensive and the need to be on the ready and on attack. So I feel like I can contain my exaggerated feelings. Because I I still do get pretty amped up about some topics. Mm -hmm. Um, But I'm able to keep myself in a more calm and rational and reasonable state of mind. You have great relationships with our kids. We both have good, great, whatever, and improving relationships with our kids. I believe a lot of that comes from the self-esteem work that we've done and the self-esteem that we've gained. Do you, What do you think about that? Do you... I mean, because you're not filled with shame anymore, you know, you know what's right, you trust your instincts. That's what I see. You... You're more confident in trusting your instincts when it comes to parenting and it makes you a better parent and gives you better relationships with the kids, especially the older ones, the the ones that are technically adults now. Um, you know, you're still you're still the mom. You, you know, you're nobody's just best friend drinking buddy. You know, that's not happening with our kids. Our kids don't drink yet, as far as we know. Believe that to be true. But you have really good relationships with them. Do you think that that stems from self-esteem? Ooh, you give me a quizzical mm, look. I No. You think that's a stretch? I think for me that's a stretch. I feel like I have good relationships because of the 
building up from the beginning and that I am letting them express themselves in a healthy way and we do talk about things when there are issues. I feel like it has helped the relationship with you not drinking overall as a family because I don't feel like I'm as much of an intercessor or as the confidant as much because then I can say, well, why don't you go talk to your dad about that? And they feel comfortable mm, doing that. Point. Whereas before, I always had to kind of lay the groundwork, come on their, come to their side with them. Um, <clears throat> like I said, kind of be <clears throat> someone that would introduce an idea to you or and I was I was always afraid to like make it but I was always afraid to make a choice or a decision or give my opinion about something uh, and they were they would be afraid to ask for things so they would send me <laughs> forward to kind of test the waters yeah you probably didn't know that yeah I mean I know that now looking back yeah. I know that because that's how it works in all alcoholic relationships. But I didn't know what was happening, not necessarily at the time. I mean, I knew, you know, I remember when I was a kid, if I had a, if I threw up in the middle of the night or if I stubbed my toe, I went to my mom's side of the bed, not my dad's side of the bed. There's just more compassion and empathy there. Mm -hmm. So I thought some of that was natural, but certainly there was some of it that was unnatural and brought on mm -hmm. by alcoholism. I just feel like you have good relationships and you have confidence in the nurturing that you're doing the um the uh knowledge that you're sharing that comes from just feeling good about yourself so i maybe i see it in a different way than what well, you see it and i and maybe it's because i feel like my role as a mother is changing i you know i did not like watch what they packed, you know, for this trip, for yeah. this last vacation or the vacation that we had gone when we went camping and we were seeing my family in Indiana, you know, I mean, I probably would have probably would have questioned some of their choices, maybe encouraged adding some things. I know that on this trip, there was a lot of conversations about how I was besides you kept saying besides sunscreen, that's all you can tell them to do you know well especially the older, older yeah ones. so just yeah. that role's changing just let them do their thing yeah, yeah that role's changing so i don't hard feel... for a professional nurturer like you so that's where i don't feel like self-confidence because i feel really out of my you know out of my element and i don't feel like i have confidence mm. when it comes to something like that very interesting that's very because interesting. Because I, I feel like and it, it makes sense. To, and I want to share the knowledge I have from experience. Yeah. Um, but I don't want them to like not do something because I have shared my experience. And we're not talking about major things. We're just talking about stupid little things, right? You know, for the most part. Like, be sure and get up and go get some breakfast. Yeah. You know. Don't forget to shower just because you... Are on vacation Our swimming in the every water. day yeah. doesn't mean you never... You don't have to ever shower. There is a need for deodorant, whether or not you think that you're in the... Water, you know, yeah, those things. Yeah, so there also seems to be less financial stress. You know, we talked about how when you feel financially stuck in an alcoholic relationship, that causes a lot of shame. 
there seems to be a lot less, and our financial position hasn't really improved dramatically. It's, I mean, honestly, it's a little more stable, but I think what's much more stable is your confidence in the idea that us staying together as a team is a good idea and that I'm not going to drink away all our money or make dumb decisions while I've been drinking. And so I just, like, stuff that used to kind of always be there, shame and stress related to finances, just it's just rarely a topic anymore. It is a little bit, right? but it's rarely a topic anymore. Do you feel less, I mean, do you, do you still feel ashamed of the fact that um, our finances are intertwined? No. And I feel like, feel confident that I'm not going to get backlash from spending money on something that maybe you don't see a need for, but I don't spend lavishly on other things. So when there is a instance where you're like, why, why did you buy that? That I'm, that's when I'm like taken back, like, well, because uh, I wanted it slash needed it slash desired it or whatever the case might be, or this other one was broken and, you know, so I am always a little, I, I am a little surprised when those are things cause, that you bring up because then I really, that's when I start reeling like, oh, well, he must have no respect for my opinion about this anymore and where I've been chugging along feeling confident, like you're not, of course, we're not talking big ticket items. You know, for me, a big ticket item would be something that's $45 or more. You know, I discuss when I buy a new pair of tennis shoes with you or the kids need stuff. But it is always a little shocking when you're like, when you question a a purchase, it just, it sends me amazingly really quickly down that, down a hole. It's just a trigger to bad things in the past. A trigger for sure. Even when the questioning is, um, it's not accusatory, it's not angry, it's just, it's a que- it's legitimately a question. It's, it's legitimately not, a question because... But it's just, it's just like how if I pop the top on a bubbly water, that still sounds like a beer, whether it's a beer or not. Like, the yeah. sound is never going to completely be erased from you. Yeah, because you would always say, I'm just asking, but then it, if you in your drinking days, it would have then... Could have been brought up later, thrown in my face. It was always out there. So that I have the just, ammunition to. Yeah, I'm just asking. So then I'm going to make you feel like a bitch for buying it, or I'm going to make you feel bad for spending money, or you know. You know, another area where self-esteem is so key to your individual recovery as a loved one, but then also the recovery of the relationship is in the area of intimacy. We've talked many times about how important trust is. And how rebuilding trust, that has to happen to lead to the intimacy. Um, but self-confidence is a huge factor in intimacy. If you're going places you haven't gone before um, in with trust, uh, you know, you talked about how you tend to be on the modest side, things like that. You got to feel good about yourself to rebuild intimacy. So... I'm not necessarily going to drag a comment out of you on that one. It it's just it's a fact. The the better you feel about yourself, the more easily uh, intimacy can be rebuilt. I want to kind of end on a question. So I've talked about how 
yes, you pointed out that I did the recovery work so that I didn't have to carry the shame around anymore so that I felt better about myself. And now I don't look back on my drinking days with a bunch of shame and I am proud and I do have self-esteem and I do feel good about myself. Does any part of that make you mad or resentful that I'm not ashamed of myself? Like, like, do you wish there was more penance or repentance? Do you, do you feel like I should be? You know, yeah, I want you to mostly feel good, but you should be beating yourself up a little Not bit. Not now. I feel like maybe like three years ago when we tried to have this conversation, three or four summers ago when we tried to have a conversation with your family, I felt like you were a little stubborn in your inability to want to apologize for some things when I'm like, it would just be, I'm sorry that my behavior was this way and that this is how it affected the family dynamic during the vacation. I felt like you were a little stubborn. That's a good point. There. Um, Cause I thought, well, what, what's the point? You do feel bad. You're blaming alcohol. You're still getting exactly what you want. You just have to throw in a couple of words because you do feel bad that those things happen. Um, other than that, no, not really at all. That's good. I mean, I know, but that's, beyond five years so that's a lot of time to heal i'm sure there were times where i was feeling stuck and resentful and we hadn't worked through resentments where i was like i want him to feel pain but then also your last few years of drinking you were in a dark hole and i saw you beat yourself up you know and i'd rather have this person than that person that was you know beating themselves up and not being happy and joyful well, I would rather have this person that I'm sitting across from and who continues to grow in your self-confidence and your self-esteem. And I want to leave our listeners with this thought. Your self-esteem is a blessing for me. So going back to the fact that I'm, uh, I'm what did we say? I'm always thinking about myself. Hmm. I, I don't... Self-analyzing. Self-analyzing and... and um, That was another word I can't remember. Anyway, um, I'm constantly thinking about myself. Your self-esteem is a huge blessing for me. And this is important, I think, for the alcoholics who are in recovery or who have recovered, who have found permanent sobriety, to understand. The work doesn't end with the work of sobriety. The more you feel good, the more confident you are, the more peace there is in the relationship. The, you know, because you're not battling shame to the degree that you once were, and I'm not battling shame to the degree that I once was, I can be wrong. You can be wrong. We can be curious and grow and develop together without the need to always be right or to put up our defense mechanisms or to draw the line in the sand. And so it's a tremendous blessing to me that you have worked so hard on building your self-confidence. And I just see that continuing into the future and continuing for us because we're not we're, we might be over the hump but it's not perfect it's far from perfect there's still a ton of work to be done and as you grow your growth is a blessing for me in the same way that I hope my growth is a blessing for you does that make sense mm-hmm great huh. we're uh, not on a sandy beach anymore <laughs> yeah we're sitting across from our microphone 
Well, it's about as hot in this office <laughs> as it was on the sandy beach. With, without the water with, to go around. Without the water. Let's, yeah. go, let's go draw a bath. <laughs> okay. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.